In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. Well, this jobs number is supposed to be just right because it's not too strong that it's going to scare the Fed into hiking rates but it's not too weak that we have to worry about a recession and earnings going down. But this Goldilocks uh, fairy tale, that's basically what it is. I mean, Wall Street likes to pretend that everything is Goldilocks, but you know, they forget uh, you know, how, how the story ends you know, when the bears came back. Uh, I forget what happens to Goldilocks. I don't know if they eat her or if she gets away, uh, but the bears are gonna come and they're gonna eat Goldilocks porridge or Goldilocks. Uh, but, you know, again, this is not a good number. I know the Biden administration is going to be out. Uh, in fact, on the Sunday morning news shows, I'm sure you're going to have all these Biden people, uh, you know, talking about Bidenomics and how, how great the economy is. And they're going to point to the unemployment rate, this jobs report, uh, and even the coverage, you know, the financial uh, media is uh, you know covering the jobs report as if it were a good number. Not that big a stock market rally today, but stocks in general were up. They were up on the week. Uh, everything was up. Uh, uh, the dollar was up uh, today, managed up on the week. Bonds were down. Bonds didn't like this number, uh, but they were still up on the week. Yields fell. One of the only things that really got hit today was gold. Uh, gold got whacked. Uh, down about $25 on this jobs number, uh, right back to around 2000. As I said on my last podcast, I think just below 2000 is the support. And that was where we fell to today, um, you know, down. Maybe we got to uh, 1999, um, You know, gold stocks got hit, you know, not too hard. Because again, I think we're at support I, I wouldn't be surprised if we got a little bit further below 2,000, maybe Monday or Tuesday next week. Now, we might not. We might just jump up. I mean, I don't think there's enough downside risk here for anybody to be concerned. Anyone who's buying gold shouldn't worry that they're buying it, I think, at 2002 or 2005. I think that's where it, it, it closed. I don't think there's enough downside from here to even be concerned about it. I would be more concerned about missing the upside than trying to buy the absolute bottom of a correction. In fact, I think what we're going to be doing here uh, in, in this trading range 
is really conditioning people to think that anytime gold rallies, you got to sell it. And I think some of the money that's been on the sidelines, maybe some institutional money that really hasn't looked at gold, uh, when they see it constantly failing at this 2000 level or even up at 2100 when we made that new high, they think, well, why bother buying gold? There's no uh, real upside here. Uh, and so that's probably keeping people out of the market, which is what a bull market does. It keeps, it keeps people out uh, and it climbs a wall of worry. And so every time we get these sell-offs, people get worried. The, the people that own it gets worried. Oh, maybe this is the top. Uh, people who don't own it, you know, don't worry about buying it because they think they're buying the top. Well, one of these days, and I think one of these days soon, it's going to move up and it's not going to stop. And it's going to surprise a lot of people who are afraid to buy it as it keeps rising. And there may even be some people who try to short the market uh, and they're going to be in for a world of hurt. I mean, they may have made a little money shorting it this time. And so they're kind of getting conditioned to sell into these rallies. Um, but uh, they're ultimately going to get burned by, by doing that. But anyway, let me get to the catalyst uh, for the sell-off in gold today. Uh, and that was the, the jobs number. But before actually I talk about today's jobs number that was better than expected, let me talk about the ADP number that we got on Wednesday that was worse than expected, right? So who are you gonna believe? Which job report is, is accurate? The one that the private sector did or the one that the government did? Anyway, so the ADP number, which came out on Wednesday, was supposed to come out at plus 123,000 jobs and we came out at plus 103,000. And the prior month was revised down a bit from 113,000 to 106. Now, inside the number, we lost 15,000 manufacturing jobs. That's a big loss. And again, those are good jobs. Those are the productive jobs that we need, uh, and they, they have higher pay. Probably, the people who lost those manufacturing jobs, well, maybe they got uh, a couple of part-time jobs working, you know, in a restaurant, uh, you know, or in a hotel or doing something just to get a paycheck uh, uh, to replace the paycheck that they lost. But they need two or three jobs. And that's, you know, the story of, of this so-called strong uh, labor market is people replacing good jobs uh, with multiple bad jobs. But this was not a strong number. In fact, one of the interesting things about it was that we lost jobs in leisure and hospitality. And that was the first time, maybe in a couple of years, uh, since we reopened after COVID, that we lost jobs in leisure and hospitality. That's mostly, I think, hotels, uh, you know, people working in those, so maybe travel is down a bit. But, you know, that was a sign that, you know, where the jobs have been coming from, that's been the big engine of low-paying jobs, leisure and hospitality, and now it's sputtering a bit because it lost jobs. So we got that report uh, that, was, uh, that was lower than expected. Uh, and that maybe set the stage. Maybe some people thought we would get a, a weaker than expected uh, government number, the non-farm payroll number for October. And the consensus was for 180,000 jobs. And... Um, we got 199,000, so it was a, a beat. Now, of course, they did revise down the prior couple of months. I think they took about 35,000 jobs off the last couple of months, um, which if you compare that to the amount of the beat, 
it's very, very possible that next month, because I think every job number saved one uh, of the year, every single one. I think there was one time where we didn't downwardly revise the prior month. So to take this month on face value, because we beat by 19,000 jobs, and say, hey, look, we created more jobs than we thought, it is very likely that by next month, they're going to revise this month's lower uh, number lower. And so it wouldn't have been a beat. It would have been a miss. But no one's going to care because they're going to be focusing on the December number, which may be another beat that gets revised to a miss in January that nobody cares about because everybody forgot about December and now they're looking at January because the media always pays attention to the number that's just reported. And so a month from now, if they revise the number that we're so excited about now and we find out that we were excited for no reason because the number was wrong, that's already old news. Everybody focuses on, uh, on, on the new number. Anyway, I'm going to continue to digest uh, this, uh, this jobs report, talk about some more economic data, and then a lot of other uh, good stuff in the podcast. So just stick around. We've got this one commercial, and we'll be right back. As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports showing what information they found, where they found it, and what they removed. Delete Me isn't just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information that you don't want on the internet. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. Now at a special discount for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com gold and use the promo code gold at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash gold, code gold. All right, we are talking about the uh, jobs report for November that everybody is going to be touting as uh, more good news. Uh, But again, beneath the surface, it really isn't good news. It's the same news that we've had for the past couple of years. So of the 199,000 jobs that the government claims were created uh, during the month, 47,000 of those jobs, uh, about 24%, were auto workers and uh, uh, motion picture workers going back to their jobs because the strikes are over. And so are these jobs really created? No, the jobs were there. It's just that the people who had the jobs were on the picket lines instead of, you know, the production lines or whatever they're doing in the motion pictures. So the workers were there. They just weren't reporting for work. They were striking. And, and so it's not the economy just created a bunch of jobs. These jobs have been there the whole time, right? They've been waiting for the workers to get off a strike. So that's a good chunk of the jobs, right? So that's not going to happen again next month because the strike only ends once, right? So that, that's been used up. But then if you look at the rest of the jobs, 82% of the rest of the jobs uh, were 
um, health care and government. 82%. That's a huge chunk of those jobs. And by the way, before I forget, in the, in the manufacturing jobs, we gained 28,000. But 30,000 of them were the auto workers going back to work. So apart from the auto workers going back to their jobs, we actually lost 2,000 manufacturing jobs. Now, again, ADP said we lost 15,000 with the same striking workers going back to their jobs. So that number was worse than the, the government number. But still, taking out the, the strikers going back to work, we lost manufacturing jobs even in the government report. But 82% of the jobs uh, being uh, government jobs. The government number was 49,000. Uh, well, that's right there. That's like 25% of the jobs all by itself. Uh, again, we don't want government jobs. First of all, where's the government getting the money to pay all these workers? They're, they're borrowing it. Now, they're not all federal employees, right? Some of these guys work for state government. But by the way, the state of California, I just read, announced, I forgot the number, but it was a record. The biggest deficit in the history of California, and they've got it right now in supposedly a good economy. Imagine what's going to happen to the fiscal situation in California when we get a real recession. And, and part of the reason for this surging deficit in California is um, uh, falling tax revenue. Right. So if, if the economy was good, tax revenue would be going up. But no, it's going down. And it's not just people leaving California. Uh, it, it's going down for all sorts of reasons. Uh, but this is a nationwide problem. It's not unique to California. Um, but these governments that are hiring workers, where are they getting the money? They're, they're borrowing it. Right. Or they got to tax it. Or in the case of the U.S., ultimately, the Fed is going to print it. Uh, but these are not productive jobs. What are these government workers going to do with their paychecks? Well, they're going to buy stuff that they didn't help produce and push up the price. It's going to mean higher trade deficits, higher budget deficits. So this is not good news uh, that we're hiring uh, all these government workers. What would be good is if we fire these government workers and freed them up to do something productive. You know, get them off the, the taxpayers' you know, payroll so they can go make an honest living in the private sector. Uh, then, again, 77,000 jobs, the number one job sector, was health care. Um, you know, ideally, right, we would be really healthy. We wouldn't need all these people working in health care. Uh, but there's a limit to how many health care workers the economy could support. Because, you know, the people who are, you know, doing health care, they're not out there producing goods. Uh, the rest of us that are producing or whoever's producing has to produce enough to cover uh, the healthcare workers. I mean, it's nice to have them, but you can't have an entire economy based on healthcare workers or, you know, they're going to starve, right? Because no one's going to feed them. Uh, but, you know, having this big uh, percentage, and healthcare is already bloated. We already spend way too much money. You know, a lot of these healthcare workers are just handling paperwork that has to do with insurance and the fact that we have an excess amount of insurance because we have an excess amount of government involvement. In fact, one of the reasons that people overuse the healthcare system is because of government subsidies. So we've diverted too many uh, people to the government. Uh, by the way, just as you know, it's a little bit off topic, but now that I'm thinking about it, I just read an article yesterday or this morning that the government now has decided that they're going to guarantee through Fannie Mae or Freddie, whatever they're using these days, uh, mortgages on multifamily homes. 
up to, I think, uh, four units, and you only have to put down 5%. Now, apparently, until yesterday or wherever they enacted this, people had to put down 20% to buy these properties, which is, you know, makes a lot of sense. Uh, but now the government says, oh, don't worry. We'll guarantee the loan uh, even if they only put up 5%. Now, the free market would never do that. See, in, in a free market, nobody's going to loan you money with 5% down. It's just not going to happen. But in the government market where the government says, hey, don't worry if this guy defaults, we got you covered, uh, then people will do it. People do all sorts of things that they wouldn't do uh, absent government protection. See, this reg- we need the free market to regulate risk because it does a really good job. And the reason the free market does a good job is because people don't want to lose their money because it's their money. They work hard for it. They don't want to lose it. So they're making a loan. They want to make sure they get the money back. And one way to make sure is you require the borrower to have skin in the game, to put up a down payment. And you want to make sure the borrower has enough money for a down payment because, you know, things could go wrong and you want him to be able to take care of that stuff, not just mail in the keys at the first sign of trouble. But that's what's going on. Once the government comes in, then who cares if the guy pays? The guy doesn't pay, the government pays. So the government steps in, screws up all the natural free market regulation, causes all sorts of risky loans to be made that never would be made uh, in a free market. And then the loans blow up and the taxpayers lose money and the government blames capitalism, right? None of this is capitalism, but they're doing the same thing here with health care. We got too much uh, money going into, ho- into health care. Interestingly enough, according to this number, uh, we got 40,000 jobs in leisure and hospitality. Now, the ADP said we lost jobs. The government says we gained 40,000 jobs. They're talking about the same month. They can't both be right. And neither of them are probably right. That's why these numbers don't even mean anything. That is the whole point. And then when you factor in, and I haven't even looked at it, the birth-death model, generally every month, the birth-death model adds more jobs than are actually created. So who knows if any of these jobs actually exist? But why do people spend so much time worrying about them? Like just waiting in anticipation for the government to tell everybody how great the economy is. Because, of course, the government wants to give you good news. So it's not a big surprise when the government gives you good news. I mean, the whole thing is rigged anyway. The media, the government, there's all a bunch of propaganda. So, you know, does it surprise you that they're delivering a report that supposedly is good news? The reality is, look at how the public is behaving and how they are reacting to polls of the economy and, you know, how awful it is. And look at Biden's approval. But look at the deficits. The deficits wouldn't be skyrocketing. I noticed earlier today, we're now just about $100 billion shy of a $34 trillion national debt. And looking at today's date, we're probably going to hit, because we only need about 100, 100 billion, we'll hit 34 trillion by or before December 20th. And that will mean we added another trillion to the national debt in just under one quarter. And again, at that pace, we're adding $4 trillion of debt each and every year. Remember, we didn't even hit a trillion dollars in debt 
until Ronald Reagan's first term, 1980, 1981. We're just doing that in a quarter, in a, in a, in a three-month period. We're adding that much debt every three months. That's the number that matters, not the government jobs number. And these numbers, as they get bigger and bigger, not only are they taking a toll on the economy, but they're evidence that the economy is weak because it's not producing sufficient tax revenue. So who cares if we're creating all these jobs? Where is the purchasing power? Where is the tax base? Because uh, it's not there. And of course, the people who are waiting for these uh, government numbers have no idea what's going on in the economy anyway. Because none of these numbers are going to matter when we have a huge crisis. And all of a sudden, you know, it hits the fan. We, we basically started a financial crisis in March. And if the Fed hadn't made the mistake of backstopping the whole thing and kicking the can down the road, who knows where we'd be right now. And none of the numbers, are, yeah, we were getting good job numbers prior to the March uh, potential financial crisis that came from out of the blue. Well, the next crisis is going to come from out of the blue. And so it's not going to matter what these job numbers are. Look, we have a potential uh, that the crisis could start in Japan. There were just announcement last night uh, on December 7th. And, and coincidentally, of course, December 7th yesterday was the day that will live in infamy. It was the day that the Imperial Navy of Japan uh, bombed Pearl Harbor and you know, got in the United States into the Second World War. Now, what they did on December 7th, 2023 is not nearly as bad, but it was certainly a surprise. Uh, nobody expected uh, somebody from the Bank of Japan uh, to come out and say, uh, we're going to be raising rates or, you know, we're probably going to start raising rates because they've been negative. In fact, I looked at the short term rates now and now they've just moved into positive territory, you know, ever so slightly. But the Bank of Japan was the last big holdout with negative rates and just holding the line. Well, if they've just green lighted the start of the rate hiking process, it's got a long way to go. Rates are going a lot higher in Japan. And not only is that a problem for Japan, it's, it's a big problem for the United States. Now, most people don't even realize it's a problem for Japan, let alone collecting, connecting all those dots uh, to, to the U.S. But we did have a surge in the yen uh, on that. Yen was up about 2.5% on the day. I think it's, it moved to like a three-month high uh, for the Japanese yen. So we're comfortably now uh, below 150, I think like 143 or something like that. But, you know, the yen has been a big funding currency. People can borrow cheap in yen and they can buy dollars, they can buy treasuries. Well, if they have to reverse that carry, that is just another uh, straw on a camel that's already weighed down with straws as far as uh, uh, breaking the back of, of the U.S. economy. So there's, there's real things that people need to be concerned about not these job numbers. And of course, even you know the, the, the debate, there was another, maybe you didn't notice, but the Republicans held a, another debate that, that, that probably very few people realized. I didn't even know they were having the debate until it was already over. And I didn't even listen to all of it. I think they're down to four uh, candidates now. Well, they're not really candidates because you know Trump's the, gonna be the nominee. I mean, if something happens to Trump, you know, if he gets hit by a bus, or I don't know, if, if some way he doesn't run, then, then maybe this stuff is relevant. Uh, but right now, it's all just a sideshow. And of course, you know, they want to, you know, make fun of Trump for, for not participating. He'd be a fool to participate. What's the point? What does he have to gain? You know, these guys are nowhere in the polls. In fact, if he was in the debates, a lot of people would watch. 
Why does he want to bring attention to his opponents? You know, he might as well just stay above the fray and just let these guys duke it out, which is what they're doing, and he's just going to coast in uh, to the, the nomination. But even there, they're not talking about the real, real problems. I know um, uh, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, yeah, he talks about uh, some, of the, some of the problems for sure, uh, but, you know, it, 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 they're, they're just scratching the surface about the financial. The cri- this is a real crisis that we are very, very close to, uh, and, and not a little financial crisis like we had in 08, the real deal, the real crash, the, uh, the, the sovereign debt crisis, the dollar crisis. I, I can't imagine that we could succeed in kicking the can down the road, given the fact that the national debt is growing at $4 trillion a year. Do the math. The, the numbers don't work. We can't keep doing this. Uh, that's why, you know, I, I'm very critical when people think, oh, I'm, I want to be defensive. I'm going to stay in cash. Look, I can get 5% in, in, a, in a money market. <laughs> There's no defense in a money market because the threat is inflation. That, it's devaluation. That's the real threat that you face. Everything else pales in comparison to that. And you get no protection from that in, in, in T-bills or something like that. So you got to be in real assets. You got to be in, you know, gold. You got to be in foreign dividend-paying stocks. I don't care if they have to go down a little bit. That doesn't matter to me. I'm, I, I, I got my eyes on the prize. I, I know how this movie ends, and I just want to play for the end and not try to finesse it and think I, you know, I got some kind of model that's going to tell me exactly when to buy my gold or exactly, uh, you know, when, when to get out of cash. You're, you're, you're never going to figure that out. You're just going to be holding the bag uh, when the bottom drops out of the dollar. But let me, let me get back um, to these jobs numbers. So the other big thing in the jobs report was the unemployment rate. And that's something that they're going to brag about for sure because it unexpectedly dropped back down two-tenths, went from 3.9 to 3.7%. And we got an uptick in the labor force participation rate, which was expected from 62.7 to 62.8. Average hourly earnings did rise a bit more than expected. They were looking for up 0.3, and we rose 0.4. But year over year, it was bang on. It was uh, 4%. And out of hours work ticked up a notch from 34.3 to 34 So they're looking at these numbers as these are good numbers, but not only are they saying that uh, the job market is strong, which I don't think it is, but they're saying we know that inflation is coming down, which it's really not, but they're basing that on a couple of reports that came out. One of them actually came out today, which is consumer confidence, which spiked quite a bit. It jumped from 61.9% to 69.4. It's still not a big number, but consumers are less pessimistic than they were. And the reason is because inflation expectations tanked. They went from 4.5%. This is what consumers expected inflation would be, you know, a year out, 4.5%. And now they only think 3.1. That is a huge drop. I mean, way more than they expected. They thought it would go down to 42 so the consumers are now getting really optimistic that inflation in the future is going to come down. 
And it's that optimism that made them more, uh, you know, improved sentiment. I think they're wrong. I think they're completely wrong on this. Maybe they're just kind of believing all the hype uh, in the media that the Fed is winning, the Fed is successfully fighting inflation, and maybe they're kind of buying into that. And so they're like, yeah, inflation is pretty high right now, but we are hopeful that over the next year it's going to come down. I mean, still not 2%, which is what the Fed is promising to deliver. But that was helping the markets think, hey, this is great, right? Because uh, uh, we've got the best of both worlds. Inflation is coming down, but the economy is not. So we've got a soft landing, right? We're not going to have a recession. Um, and, 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 and they're wrong about that. The, the other piece of news they got that was uh, feeding this narrative was the productivity numbers that came out. I think it was yesterday that came out. And this is... Q3 uh, revised a bit, and the initial report, the prior one, was 4.7% productivity gain, and now we got the productivity gain of 5.2. So more productivity and unit labor costs dropped more. They were revised from minus 0.8 to minus 1.2, and so productivity is good. I mean, that's, you know, that's a good thing. But a lot of people I was listening were spitting, oh, this is great because, you know, this really helps the Fed fight inflation if we have more productivity. No, it helps the Fed disguise inflation. Productivity doesn't stop inflation, but it does make it harder to see the inflation. But it doesn't get rid of it. Again, for example, and remember, inflation is the expansion of the money supply. The result is that prices go up, but productivity expands the supply of goods. And when that happens, the price of goods go down. So you have two counteracting forces. You have inflation pushing prices up and you have productivity pushing them down. Now, whichever one is stronger is going to determine where prices go. But one being stronger doesn't negate the other. So for example, let's say productivity is so strong that prices would have dropped by 5%. Everything we need is 5% cheaper because there's so much more of it. That's great. And the companies are loving it because their cost of production has gone down too. So the cost has gone down 5%. The price has gone down by 5%. So the margins are the same, but now they sell more because you could buy more when stuff costs less. That's just how supply and demand works. So everybody is winning when prices come down. right? But now the government creates a bunch of inflation. Let's say the government creates 7% inflation. Well, that offsets the 5% price cut, and now we see 2% price increase. Now, the government say, hey, this is great. We only have 2% inflation. Fantastic. The Fed gets a gold star. We, we hit 2%. It's not 2%. It's 7%. Prices are 7% higher than they otherwise would have been had the Fed not created inflation. So that's still a 7% tax. People are spending or paying 7% more than they should have. Now, again, the government will say, well, this is necessary because if prices went down, all hell would break loose. No, they wouldn't. I just explained. Everybody would benefit except the government. So, but the government uses productivity to slip that hidden inflation tax under, you know, underneath us, and we don't know that we've been taxed. So that's all it does. Yes, it makes it easier to Fed to keep on creating inflation and then lying about how much inflation they've created because of the extra productivity uh, that has 
couple of other uh, data points that I wanted to get into that came out. The trade deficit came out worse than expected, not materially worse, but it's already horrific, right? It was supposed to be 64.1 billion and we got 64.3 billion, but that's a lot of red ink and there's gonna be more of it because you know these healthcare jobs that we're creating, these government jobs that we're creating, they're gonna be uh, spending that money uh, on, on, on imports. But another thing, oh, the, the Challenger job report. Let me mention that. That came out yesterday. A lot more job cuts than they had reported the prior month. The prior month, there was 36,836 announced layoffs. And the November number was 44,510. So that's quite a few jobs uh, being lost on the week. But I wanted to talk a little bit more about um, the Supreme Court case that I talked about on Tuesday because it's very relevant to inflation. My strategy and pretty much your main refuge in inflation, the way you avoid the inflation tax, is you own real assets that will preserve their value. So when there's inflation and the value of money goes down, the assets that you own, their price goes up in terms of that money, but they may not have any more value. They just have a higher price. But if you own real assets and not paper, you avoid the loss of inflation. You, you, you dodge the inflation tax. But you have to hold on to the assets and not sell them. Or you have to be able to ride out the inflation and not sell the assets, get the income that the assets produce. So if it's a stock, right? if you have a stock and the government creates a lot of inflation, and let's say the dollar loses 90% of its value, and now your stock goes up 10 times, um, you've preserved your wealth. You don't have to sell that stock because it's paying dividends. Your dividends have gone up 10 times too. But now you get those dividends, maybe you have to pay a tax on the dividends, but you still own the asset and you have the income. But here is the problem with what the government is trying to do. And maybe it's not a coincidence, right? We're about to have a lot of inflation and the government wants to be able to tax it. Right? Because inflation is a tax, and we know that the government doesn't like it when you avoid their taxes. And the idea that income includes unrealized gains in any asset that you own doesn't have to be an investment asset. It could be you know, your, your, your furniture. But if something that you own has a higher price at the end of the year than at the beginning of the year, if the government can say, oh, that, that's income to you, we're going to tax that. Well, then that's it. We're done. There's no escaping inflation. Everybody is going to get destroyed. And it's not just that we're, we're putting the government in a position to tax the hell out of us with inflation, and there's no way to avoid it. Right? Same thing with gold. You own gold. You know, If gold goes from 2000 to 10000 and you haven't sold it, the government says, well, you have $8,000 of income. Where are you going to get the money to pay the tax? Well, you've got to sell your gold. Same thing would happen with your real estate. What happens if you, you have a house and you paid $500,000 for the house and now all of a sudden the house is worth $5 million or $50 million? But, it, you know, $50 million what? If your cost of living goes up 100 times, if your price of their house goes up 100 times, well, you're not any richer. You just have bigger numbers. You've just added zeros to everything. But now the government could say, well, that's all income to you. 
almost the entire value of your house is income, so give us 40% of it. Well, where are you going to get the money? You'd have to sell the house. Everybody. The government basically will have the ability, if the Supreme Court actually buys this and says that, yeah, the government can call any appreciation income and tax it under the 16th Amendment without apportionment, that's the last bit of freedom we have you know, from a tyrannical government that really has the ability to uh, undergo a communist revolution because we've given the government the power to nationalize every asset legally. Because all they have to do is print a bunch of money and so the price of every asset goes up and now they claim that you owe a huge tax. How are you going to pay the tax? you got to sell the asset. Who's going to buy the asset? Well, the only one with any money, the government. Or with enough money because they run the printing presses. They turn the principal of your asset into income and then confiscate it under the guise of taxation. So hopefully the Supreme Court will not open this door and, and set the stage for this type of power. We're supposed to be a country where uh, the government is a servant. The people are the master. The government's supposed to have limited power, limited taxation power. What's on the table right now is unlimited power to tax and destroy. Remember, the power uh, to tax involves the power to destroy. What the Supreme Court might do is give the government the ultimate power to tax, which means they have the ultimate power for complete destruction of the economy. So we'll have to watch this uh, this Supreme Court case. Now, it's possible that the cowards at the Supreme Court will punt on this issue. They won't even go there. Like They're trying to give these guys an out where they can kind of find a way to rule on this case and obviously rule against the taxpayer and say the government could do this without actually answering the question of can they tax all unrealized income by trying to come up with some way to say, well, the company realized the income. Yeah, but the company realized the income they're taxing income that was realized even before you own the stock. I mean, it's clearly a property tax, but they can lie and pretend that some kind of excise tax on, on earnings. I don't know what they're going to do. They, but they'll try to avoid the question, which they should do. I mean, they should resolve it. Let's not wait for another uh, case to make it all the way up to the Supreme Court. You, the, 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 the Supreme Court knows that this is a controversial issue because this is all a wealth tax. A wealth tax is basically a tax on unrealized gains, right? It's a property tax. It's the value of your property, uh, and that has to be apportioned. That's a direct tax. So they could, they could do that right now. They could rule and say income has to be realized, and they can reaffirm the concepts from the Pollock case and the Eisner case and even Bershaber and all these cases that says only income is exempt from the apportionment provisions. In the income tax was inherently a direct tax. That's why it was struck down as unconstitutional uh, by the court in Pollock, because it was a direct tax and it wasn't apportioned. So they amended the Constitution, and now they're taxing income directly without apportionment. Uh, but they can't tax anything else, and they can't just call stuff income to get around the Constitution. So the Supreme Court needs to... Uh, do its job and remind everybody. But I'm afraid that they could do the opposite. They could overturn all that and kind of open up the door by saying 
that, well, it's not really a direct tax, you know, only, only capitations are direct taxes, because that's what the government lawyer was trying to uh, imply, that it isn't even a direct tax. You know, it could be an excise tax, that, you know, because they tried to say for a while that the only direct tax is a capitation, which is BS, because the Constitution itself, and a capitation is a head tax. They just tax you, everybody has to pay a certain amount of money. It's not tied to your property, it's just if you exist, you gotta pay the tax. That's a capitation. But the Constitution says capitations or other direct taxes. So clearly, other direct taxes isn't a capitation because they already mentioned that. So the other taxes would be things like property tax or an income tax. You know, a direct tax is any time you pay the tax directly to the government. That's it. It's pretty simple. If you send the government the check, it's direct. If you don't, if you buy a product, if you pay a sales tax or a duty, you don't, even, you don't send the government anything. You just buy the product. The tax is in there. That's indirect. The government is getting the money from you indirectly through the things that you buy. But if you have to send the money, if the government sends you a bill and you send them a check and you write United States Treasury and you send it, it's a direct tax, right? You know, it's very, very simple. It's just the government wanted to complicate it because they wanted to get around the constitutional restrictions uh, on, uh, on apportionment. A few other things that I did want to talk about today. Look, I know Bitcoin made a big move up again, back above 44,000. Uh, Jamie Dimon, you know, came out and said some very bad things about Bitcoin uh, in a congressional hearing. He wants Bitcoin to be uh, banned. He thinks it should be outlawed because he can only think of one use case, and that is for illegal activity, uh, whether it is, uh, you know, tax evasion, money laundering, uh, drugs, whatever it is. I mean, look, there, there, Bitcoin is being used by some people. Uh, for legitimate purposes. They're buying it because they think it's digital gold. Now, they're wrong. They're, they're making a mistake. Uh, but they, they do think that the dollar is going to go down and they think it's a, an, ex, an alternative to holding gold. And so they're, they're not criminals. In fact, I think most of the people, the vast majority of people who are buying Bitcoin are not criminals. They're, they're law-abiding people. I just think they're making a mistake. I think they're, I think they're foolish uh, to be buying Bitcoin, but they're not criminals. And the other use case is, is trading. People are gambling with Bitcoin totally legally. They're buying it and selling it and, and they're making money, right? It's, it's legal to gamble. I mean, you can buy lottery tickets, you can bet on sports, uh, you know, you can gamble on anything. That, that doesn't mean that the government should ban it just because people are, are, uh, are gambling in it. But there are people in the government that actually think it is a threat. They actually think or they believe the BS that somehow it's a threat to the dollar, it could replace the dollar, it could replace gold, which it can't do. Again, CNBC, again, this morning, again, Andrew Warsorkin, he didn't call it digital gold. But when he went over what was going on in the markets, he didn't mention gold, you know, although you know, gold wasn't down that much. Maybe if, he, if it was down a lot, he would have mentioned it, but it was you know, pretty flat. But he mentioned Bitcoin, and he said that uh, Bitcoin is the way CNBC measures risk on and risk, risk off. I mean, that's their gauge. I mean, I guess the VIX doesn't matter anymore because these guys have found Bitcoin. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a measure of risk appetite. That's not what Bitcoin is measuring. Yes, it's very risky to buy it, but it's not a barometer of risk in general. I mean, I think maybe it's a barometer of intelligence. I don't know. I mean, it's like, you know, when people are selling Bitcoin, they're wising up, intelligence on. When, when they're buying it, they, they, they've turned their intelligence off. Or maybe it's not intelligence, may, intelligence, maybe it's gullibility, 
right? When people are gullible, they buy it. And when they start to question that narrative, they, they, they sell it, they're, they're waking up. But it's not like some kind of overall barometer where you just should look at Bitcoin and that's gonna tell you, uh, you know, what, what, what investors in general. Bitcoin is marching to one beat and that is ETF. The ETF is coming, right? And we're all gonna get rich because the idiots are waiting for the ETF. See, we're the smart ones. We're buying our Bitcoin right now. All the fools are gonna wait for the ETF because they're too dumb to just buy it now. They're just waiting and watching the price go up. Oh, no, no, I don't wanna buy my Bitcoin now at 44,000. I wanna wait until the ETF where I can pay 70,000 or 80 or whatever people think it's gonna be. No, if you think the ETF is gonna make Bitcoin go up, you're not gonna wait for the ETF to buy it. You're gonna buy it right now. It makes no sense to wait to buy something at a higher price when you can just buy it now. Again, that's why this whole thing is absurd, but that is where all the buying is coming from. Once the ETFs are here, well, now what's the reason to buy? There are no more reasons, right? That's, that's, the, last, that's the last reason. That's the last card uh, that Bitcoin has has to play. And they may not even do it. I mean, now when you listen to these Jamie Dimon comments, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's possible that it ain't even going to happen, that they might come out and say, you know what, we don't want to condone uh, this uh, uh, investment. Maybe the Bitcoin pumpers have put out so much hype about how Bitcoin is going to eat everything else and how successful it's going to be if we only have an ETF they may have actually scared the government out of allowing it. They might have said, how can we enable this? If this is really gonna happen, if this ETF is gonna be the end of the dollar because everybody's gonna pile into it and it's completely legitimized Bitcoin, we better not approve it. So, you know, be careful because all this hype just could come back and bite you. But either way, I think it's gonna be a buy the rumor, sell the fact. Uh, but who knows? I mean, <laughs> This, it is not a lock. When you get comments like that, Jamie Dimon isn't just talking. And these guys, you know, they listen to what Jamie Dimon, they don't give a damn what I say. But uh, Jamie Dimon carries a lot of weight. And I don't, I don't know if he's just saying stuff like that, you know, by accident. You know, uh, there, there may have been some purpose uh, behind those comments. So I think people who are just sitting complacently in their Bitcoin, um, they, they, they really need to uh, think long and hard about, uh, about what they're doing. But anyway, I think that's it for today's uh, podcast. Hopefully everybody will have a, a great, a great uh, weekend. Let me just take a look. I made a couple of notes here. See if I just covered everything I wanted to talk about. Uh, yeah, no, no, I, I, I think I covered it. That's, that's, Anyway, so I hope everybody has a, a great, uh, a great uh, weekend. Oh, and I wanted to remind everybody, again, on the, 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 uh, the videos that I put up so far, and I got a lot more stuff that I'm going to bring out uh, about, you know, what happened to my bank and, and, and how the government did this. But in the meantime, I really want to get people watching the videos I put up. Uh, the first one uh, is the actual 60 Minutes interview of me. We've got 60,000 views on that one so far, but I'd like to get a lot more of, on that. And so if you haven't watched it, watch it, uh, comment on it, like it. But I, I, want, I want that one to be more popular. And in particular, the shorter one that I made, 
which is only nine and a half minutes. That's the way 60 Minutes Australia cut that interview to make me look bad, to make me look like I had something to hide, to make me look guilty, uh, to make me look like I refused to answer their questions, to kind of completely flip it around and create the, the opposite impression of the actual interview. And everybody that's seen both of them uh, knows that, but there's 60,000 people that saw my interview that haven't gone and seen the, the, the nine and a half minute one, which was how uh, 60 Minutes presented that interview to the audience. And of course they embellished it with like another 15 minutes of contact to make me look even worse. I didn't put that up there. I just wanted to focus on the questions and answers with me and just a little bit of information that they put in there to kind of, uh, when they were talking about what I said, right? And, and then showing what I said. Uh, and the reason I want a lot of people to watch these videos is when you put in Nick McKenzie, who is their reporter uh, from 60 Minutes, who, I, who is trying to pretend he didn't lose my defamation lawsuit, even though I, I kicked his butt and, and, and won seven judgments in a row, including the final judgment, uh, where he was ordered to pay me the 550000 in damages, and then his employer was ordered to pay my, my attorney costs. But I want so that when somebody Googles our YouTubes, when you go to YouTube and you type Nick McKenzie, I want to make sure that those videos are one and two. I want to make sure that there's some reminder there of uh, what was done, because the, the media is trying to whitewash this whole thing, and I'm trying to get the truth out there. So you guys can help me get the truth out there. Just watch the video, even if you don't want to watch the whole nine minutes. Just get a view on there. Get the view count up. Put a comment, like it or something, so we get it higher in the algorithms. Uh, it's not that hard. There's not that many interviews of videos on YouTube about this guy. So I get two big videos. They'll be the first videos he sees every time he goes to YouTube and puts his name in there. I know he does that. He's probably got a big ego and he likes to uh, you know, see, see the, the videos. I want him to be reminded when he goes there of the losses. Plus, I want other people to see him. If they're going to YouTube Nick McKenzie, I want them to see some of this information because the mainstream media, they just keep giving this guy one award after another. right? They, they've anointed him uh, the king of, uh, of corruption busting. Uh, and I want to bust that myth and show that, that, that he himself is corrupt and he can't be trusted because he lies and he spreads disinformation. So watch those videos, comment on them. And yeah, sure, comment on this video. I forgot, uh, you know, give it a like, give it a thumbs up, uh, make a comment on it. And again, have a great weekend. I'll be back again next week.